right, good morning, everyone. Let's pray as we begin. We will continue our study at, and look at the book of James. Thank you, Father, for watching over us today. Thank you for the glory of the gospel and the truth of your word and the goodness and grace and the joy of our redeemed community. So, Father, would you teach us this morning? Help us to understand your word. Help us to learn from each other. Help us to enjoy being in your presence. Empower us to serve you well this coming week. We pray in Jesus' name. Alright, so we did we started to look at the, the book of James last week and we got through most of the uh, introductory material and we're beginning to look at some of the main themes of the book. And we talked a little bit about the first two. Um, and I wanted to just make a couple more comments on the third one, the idea of perfection, meaning maturity. Uh, it's found 19 times actually in the New Testament, five times in James. And so 20, 25% of the mentions of the word teleos, or perfection, are found in James, which shows that what his, one of his purposes in writing was that the people to whom he was writing would apply the gospel and move towards maturity in Christ, maturity uh, in their understanding of who God is and in the community. And then the next main point to look at is just endure suffering. Think of how the letter starts. Right? Mentioning the fact that there will be trials and tribulations and difficulty, uh, but blessed are you when those things come. Um, and so that you understand what is happening, pray for wisdom so that you understand what God is doing in the midst of the trials and tribulations that you're going through how they are working uh, for your well-being. Um, there's a reward for those who persevere in the trial. And he also says the Lord is returning. So it, the Lord, the judge is coming in, in uh, James chapter 5. So persevere until that happens. Persevere, do what is right. Um, recognize that God, the just judge, will get his way. Okay. Really what I wanted to look at, I wanted to talk about a couple of things. You know that we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. And if you've read through the book of James, it reads a little bit like a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And that's obviously by design of God, but also thinking in terms of just the relationship of the author. We talked about James being the half-brother of Jesus, not believing in him during his earthly ministry, but seeing him in his resurrected state, becoming a believer, becoming a leader of the church in Jerusalem. And at some point then, it took, took root. And we can see visions of the, of the Sermon on the Mount all throughout the book of James. Um, for example, Matthew 7 says, Ask and you will receive, it will be given to you. And what do we see in James 5? Ask of God and you will receive wisdom. Uh, Matthew 5 says, Do not be angry against your brother. What does James say in chapter 1? Don't be angry. Um, Jesus says that uh, if you endure, you will be saved. Matthew, uh, Jesus says, if you persevere, you will be rewarded. Uh, blessed are the peacemakers. And the Sermon on the Mount, and, Jesus, and Matthew talks about, I'm sorry, James talks about the wisdom from above that produces a harvest of peace, of righteousness, that they practice peace. Uh, be merciful, Jesus says. And James says, if you show judgment without mercy, you will receive judgment without mercy. But if you have judgment with mercy, you will receive the same mercy triumph over judgment. So on and on it goes. That there's, in a sense, a 
on the Sermon on the Mount. So it's obvious that James had heard this sermon probably several times, uh, but it's certainly after he became a believer, the one he now refers to as his Lord, and of whom he is the slave. And we saw that in James, the one he calls himself doulos, a slave, a servant of Jesus, not the half-brother, not one who is worthy of a higher position by virtue of family relationship. There's no nepotism, as it were, in the gospel. It's those that are in the family, the true family of God. So, I like that because as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, you will hear me making references to the book of James. Often, I've already done it several times. It's for that reason. James, in practically living out the gospel, what it looks like in our application, understands the gospel. And as Jesus is doing that as well, he's going to give us some application points as well. But then, probably the biggest question that comes up, is how are we to understand faith works? How are we to understand what Paul says and what James says? You ever heard that question before? Paul says that we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. We understand that to be that by faith we what? We receive, we have uh, um, imputed to us the righteousness of Christ apart from anything that we can do. But then James comes on and says, for we are not justified by faith alone, but by works. And on its face, it seems like this is a blatant contradiction. <coughs> and then he thought so over the years. <coughs> okay? So how do we handle that? Here we have two men of God, set apart by God the Holy Spirit, to give us the written word so that we understand the full counsel of God. One says justification is by faith alone, and the other one says justification is not by faith alone. In both cases, do they have the same word for justification? Yes, dikaiah. It's the same word. Okay? It's actually the same, the same word for, yeah, it's justification is the same word. Okay? So that adds to the equation. What does dikaiah mean? It means to declare righteous. Okay? So that adds to the mix. Okay? So do we just turn on the shredder and just, and just go on to something else? Or do we seek to try to understand exactly what's going on? So, um, the first thing you could say... Hmm? Well, is, is one... Is Paul's thinking that we're justified, how we're justified before God, and the other, James, is thinking how we're justified before men, because he, did, he does say, show me your faith. So, um, I'm going to ask Mr. Hammonds to order the pizza because the discussion is now over. <laughs> and we can go <laughs> So, <laughs> she must be an Awana teacher because she really knows her scriptures and the promises. <laughs> Thank you. That's exactly right. <coughs> and it's okay. We should know that. We should understand. Yes. Can you say it again? Can you say it again? I wasn't concentrating. Who said it? <laughs> um, well, Paul was talking about being justified before God, your salvation, your faith, you know. And then James was talking about when a, like another person sees you and how you're justified before men, because he says, show me your faith. Thank you. 
So, can I give a little more background now? Now that we have the conclusion. No, no, this is like a good movie. You know, sometimes you, you, they start the movie and there's this dramatic scene, right? And you're wondering what's going to happen to the main actor? And then underneath it says, 36 hours earlier. Back, right? Okay, so let's go back to 36 hours earlier. <laughs> and let's talk. So what's going on? Paul, of course, is, is, a, is an evangelist, he's a missionary, he's an apostle, he's a teacher of the word. He's going out very clearly confronting the Judaizers who want to bring everybody under the law of Moses, including the ceremonial law. And he's saying, no, no, Christ is enough. There is the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So Paul would say, we're not saved by the works of the law. He's answering a different argument. He's confronting a different audience. And he's clearly uh, defending the gospel. So that God gets all the glory. But you can imagine that if you hear someone say, uh, there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. That that's not properly taught what that can lead to. And we see that even today. In fact, I would say that if you have initially properly uh, preached the gospel, that you should expect to hear a response something along the lines of, well, does that mean that we can do whatever we want? That should be an initial reaction, because that is what the gospel is saying. And yet, that's not what the gospel is saying. The gospel is saying there's nothing that we can do to bring about our salvation, it's all of Christ, all for the glory of God. He is sufficient. He is our righteousness. But Jesus never said that he's going to impute his righteousness to us, and he's going to have us declared righteous in God's sight, and he's going to write our names in the Lamb Book of Life, and he's going to forgive us, and he's going to put his spirit in us so that we can go off and live whatever way we want to live. Okay? So it's a false then understanding of the impact the gospel will have. So perhaps James has to deal with some misunderstanding as he has heard from others what Paul is, is, is asking. Maybe. Because Paul would never say, don't obey the word of God. In fact, Paul would never say, don't obey the law. He actually says it several times. Obey the law. He calls the law good and righteous and holy. So how do we pull all these things together? Okay? And James is asking, or he's answering a different question. Okay? Paul is asking the question, how are we saved? That's the question he's responding to when he gives his explanation in Romans, in Galatians, among other places, Ephesians. How is a person saved? But James is asking, or answering, a different question. How does a saved person live? Okay, what does salvation look like? Um, and so, James then, when he addresses that issue, I mean, think about what he says in chapter 1. Let's just, oops, sorry. Let's uh, look at James chapter 1. I mean, even though James is writing what some consider like a sermon, but it's, it's not a three-point sermon with an illustration at the end. It's, it's a scattered sermon. He's going all over the place, pulling different ideas together. But he says, <clears throat> Be doers of the word. Know this, my brothers, verse 19. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 
Therefore, we all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Okay, he's talking about salvation here. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. And he goes on and, and uh, talks about how to apply. So the first question he wants to ask is, has the word been implanted in you? If the word's been implanted in you, you've met the living God, you have come to faith in Christ, now it's going to have an effect. So don't forget what it says. Go off and live it out. Um, and, and we get to verse 2, I'm uh, sorry, chapter 2, and he says in verse 19, so let's, let's go back to verse 14, because really the conversation goes from 14 to 26, verses 14 to 26 in chapter 2. But I want to start in verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe in each other. So, so he's answering the question. Somebody's saying, I just have faith. I don't even do anything. They say, great. You're not qualified to be a demon. Okay? But that's not saving faith. That's not encountering the living God. And so in the broader context, then he, he, he expands what it means and if we just read it, we understand the question that he's asked, he's answered. So why don't we just read it? So let's start in the back, to my left, and if each one could just read a verse. Let's just read from 14 to 26, and let's just hear the argument unfold of what James is saying. Okay, so Maria, can you start verse 14? Which chapter? Chapter 2, James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. And let's, just be, let's listen as the argument unfolds, okay? Starting at verse 14, all the way down to verse 26. So you read one verse, and then we'll just we'll read through the class. So what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the thing for the body, what good is that? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Okay, that's fine. So, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of works, faith was perfected. In the scripture, was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Okay. So just reading through the argument and we hear him develop it, we understand the question he's trying to answer, right? This is what authentic saving faith will look like. 
It's a different question than what Paul is initially trying to answer when he is giving the gospel and saying it's not as a result of what we do with our ceremonial offerings and with sacrifices and with rituals and pilgrimages and all the things that, that we might be tempted to do. Okay? I'm turning it off. I'm turning it off. So, and, and both of them you'll notice, and I'll... I'll respect our teachers here and not uh, ruin everything that they have here. But we have Paul, and I'll, I'll put in quotes versus James. Okay? The principal passages that we're dealing with would be Romans 3 and 4. But not just exclusively. And over here it would be James... Two, as we've seen, 14 to 26. They're dealing with the question of faith. One says faith alone, prima facie, on the face of it. The other says faith plus. Okay? Paul, when he makes his argument, refers to Abraham... James, when he makes his argument, refers to Abraham. Okay, so you see how it's unfolding here. Okay, and what's going on? And that's why some want to look at it and say there's a, there's a blatant contradiction. But is there? We've just read through James 2, 14 to 26. What question is he answering? I just said, it's what it's What does faith, saving faith, look like. If we were to take the time to read through Romans 3 and 4, we would see that Paul is answering a different question, including Abraham, including David. He's answering the question, how are we saved? How are we justified before God? Right? He says that. If it's by works, and he goes on and says then, it perhaps even the Greek men of the faith would be justified. But that's not what they say in Romans 4. Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. Now it's interesting, James quotes the very same verse here. Genesis 15, 6. Okay? But James is also referring to another event in Abraham's life. What is it? Verse 21. Sacrifice of Isaac. Sacrifice of Isaac. Is that found in Genesis 15? Where is it found? Later on, Genesis what? I believe it's 22. Is that right? Sacrifice of Isaac. Yes. Yeah, so it's Genesis 22. Okay? So... Paul, when he writes to the Romans in chapter 4, says Abraham was not justified by his works, by circumcision, but by faith. And then he goes on and says David was not justified by being a king. He was justified, righteousness imputed, because of the grace of God. He quotes from Psalm 32. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose wickedness the Lord does not count against him. Okay? Just not reckoning against it. Just not put on his account. Imputation. Meaning, the great exchange, right? My wickedness, 
my rebellion, my death, is put on the cross. His innocence, obedience, and life was put onto my account. Okay? That's what it was with David. That's what it was with Abraham. So, you can see then where the, the argument has been developing. And the reason why we just read carefully then, when... So, they both quote from Genesis 15, 6. And in Genesis 15, 6, what is happening there? What is the, what is the context of Genesis 15? Do you recall? His covenant with Abraham. Okay? The context is Abraham has just gone on this great venture, this great rescue operation, right? Has rescued his nephew, has, or Lot and Lot, nephew, and all kinds of folks. He brought them back. None of them were harmed. Brought them all back. He is surrounded by his weapons of war and by his bounty. Right? And God appears to him and says, I'm your shield. I'm your great reward. Not this pile of accoutrements that you put around yourself. And then he says, go outside and look up. Start counting his stars. Abraham says, I can. He says, your children will be like the stars of heaven. Abraham, knowing he's in the presence of God, believes. And at that point it says, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay? He's just clearly told Abraham, it's not as a result of your works. It's because of me. I'm your great reward. I'm your shield. You believe in my promise that is salvation. Okay? So Abraham at that point is justified in the presence of God. Declared righteous. Declared not guilty. And clothed with the righteousness of the promise of God that will eventually be fully manifested in Christ. Okay? But he has to go on and live out now that faith. And we know that he had some mistakes along the way. But he gets to Genesis 22, his one, his beloved son, and there's a little language thing there because he had a son before, but it's referred to as his only son, his son of promise, his precious son. He goes up on the mountain, he's supposed to sacrifice him, right? That's what's going on in Genesis 22. He is applying the faith that he already showed in 15. So when James is talking about Abraham, he is going to Genesis 22 and saying, you see, Abraham was truly saved because he obeyed God and was willing to give up everything. It's proof of his salvation, not the merit for his salvation. That's what James is saying. That's, that's the example that he uses in James chapter 2. Whereas Paul is simply talking about how do you get into the kingdom of heaven in the first place? How are you justified before God? And also uses Abraham as an example and says, by faith. Is that clear? Now, does Paul go on to say, and now you can just get up your lounge chair, kick your feet up, have a double espresso, and just enjoy entire life? Not in your life, does he say? He didn't, he didn't live. <laughs> he didn't live that way at all, did he? Can live that way at all. 
he lived out in joyful obedience the gospel that had gripped his life. And that's what then it should look like. Obedient, joyful, submissive, active lifestyle for Christ. And that's what Paul did. And so I have no doubt that if and when James and Paul ever sat down at the same table and discussed theology, they were in total agreement. There's an illustration in a well-known illustration in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where in verse 9 he says and, or, uh, and there's a long list of sins here but he says or do you do not know that the king that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God and he lists these sins but he goes on to say in verse 11 and such were some of you so here, here we see Paul saying clearly that uh, faith is is, is lived out it's, I mean, it's, it, he's basically saying what James said. Yes. Yes. But we also know that Paul was really fighting for what what salvation was. Yes. Because when they finally got to that council in Acts, he they're the whole talking about now. Do you have to have this behavior? Right. Or is it? And then the decision is, no, it is just this. So that's what he was encountering again and again. Whereas James is dealing with those who claim to believe, but whose lives are disordered and a mess. They say, really? Is that what saving faith looks like? And is appealing to them to say, well, the word has been implanted in you. Obey it. Don't forget it. Um, and don't be just uh, have a intellectual knowledge, if you will, but actually apply it. So they're, they're in complete harmony with one another. And then that, and that they agree with Jesus, who said, by your fruit you will know them. And we'll see that later in the Sermon on the Mount as well. Based on how they live. And so we go back to then the same word to declare just, justify, is yes. For Paul, it is before God, the holy counsel of God. And for James, it is before man, where he said, not many of you should pretend to be teachers because you will suffer more severe judgment. People are going to look at the life of the believer and say, really? Or, yeah, we see, a, we see a consistency in how they live. Okay? Um, so I want you to look at one more verse with me. Galatians 5, verse 6. Remember, Paul is writing this. And in my understanding of the order of the books, about the same time, actually, as the book of James is being written. And Galatians 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision, which represents what? The Jewish, the Jewish law, Jew, okay? Nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But what? Faith. Faith what? We're working good. Working through love. See, Paul, uh, James would read that and say amen and amen, but he would say it in a little different way. And he took 14 verses or 15, what Paul said in one. But both of them understand this gospel matters. Not only is it true, it will truly impact. And that's why the reformers, many of them, pick up on the idea that faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. It will always show itself. 
Now that doesn't mean that we are to be the ones who just go around circumspection, looking at every little thing in our lives and trying to figure out what we in or we out. No, we're still in how? By faith. Completely clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And in Him we stay. You know, Paul, after all of his years of rigorous service for the Lord, including being suffered, suffering in prison, beaten, etc., 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 what does he say in Philippians 3? A letter that was written in the later stages of his life, though he still had a few more years afterwards. Okay? In fact, let's go to verse 7 of Philippians chapter 3 and just read to the end of verse 9. Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I was talking about his previous life before Christ. I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So even after he's been actively involved in ministry for decades, says, my aim is just to be found in him, having a righteousness that's not my own. But as the, as the reformer said, justicia alien, a foreign or an alien righteousness that is Christ that was imputed in him. Okay? They all work together. The gospel is the gospel. But it's up to us to understand what the gospel is and what the gospel does and the impact it'll have. And we find all these uh, apostles and teachers working together. Okay? Now here's a quote from a commentator's name is Richard Lawrence. And uh, I think he was secretly reading... Linda reads notes. <laughs> because this is what he said. If we want to know how to be saved, we need to read Paul. If we want to know how the saved should live, we should read James. Okay? Where would Martin Luther have... Would, 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 the, would the James writing have influenced that church background that says you must do other things. Yes. Uh, he did not like the book of James when he discovered the gospel because he thought it was teaching something other than what he had discovered. And it was only with time because he had to overcome a whole works righteousness baggage. Man, he went to great extremes to try to cleanse his soul, try to cleanse his conscience. <laughs> so, Here's what, I, I want to read, this is from one of his commentaries on the relationship between faith and works, okay? This is probably, so this is Luther. Oh, it is a busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done this. It is constantly doing that. Whosoever does not do good works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith in good works, but knows neither what faith is, nor what good works are. 
Yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. He understood his experience beforehand. He tried and tried and tried few works. He said it can't work. But now that he knows Christ, there will be works and he understands the relationship. I just find that healthy that this man has struggled coming out of a Roman Catholic tradition of works righteousness of sacrifice and ritual and routine and all of these things and drove himself almost to the edge of insanity. In fact, there are some opponents of Luther that think he did tip over into that, that camp. I just think he was a man that deal, dealt with deep guilt and felt freedom from his guilt in Christ. And so anything that was a whiff of going back to the way he lived before, he was... Not ashamed to call it out, even if he wasn't always very refined in how he did it. Um, some of the other reformers were a little bit more refined in how they approached it and had to tamper down some of his, his attitudes, which shows us the need to have our faith in community, in communion one with another. Okay? So if we get that down, if we understand this, we will love reading Paul. We will love reading James. We will understand how they fit together and we'll rejoice in the gospel. And that was James' intent and design as he wrote this letter. Any thoughts on that? I was thinking about Luther and, and other folk who are constantly in uh, deep introspection about whether they're in or out, to use your words. And I think what the, there's a danger if you're deeply judging yourself constantly, worrying about the inner, the inner out. Right. It, it can also make you judgmental concerning other folk, whether they're in or out. Right. And, and that's a and that's a that's a, a sad uh, obsession that you're. Looking for the in crowd and the out crowd. Especially when we make ourselves the arbiters of that. Yeah, we have the rule set. We, not, <laughs> the, 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 the funny thing is, when we set the curve of the rules, we always just, we always manage to give ourselves a passing mark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but I attain victory over those things so I can be the arbiter. <laughs> Well, at the same time, just forgetting about all the other things that I'm not victorious over yet, right? I mean, it's just that we always, it's a very limited guideline that we use as we judge one another. Yeah. But it does say, examine yourself, whether you're in the faith, and it does also say that if you're deep-rooted in sin, you most probably are not saved. Yes, we, we take the whole counsel of God, right? We don't pit one part of the word of God against the other. But we do study it individually and then put the pieces together. Yes, yes. Uh, how many books of the New Testament say things like, are you sure? Be sure. Here's how you be sure. Are you in or are you out? Do you have the fruit? Do you not? But it's never separated from the gospel, the provision in Christ. And that's, and that's the safeguard then. And I think, you know, as I, as I quote in the shame this morning, for every look at your sin, make ten looks at Christ, so that we're constantly reminded of being found in Him, clothed in a righteousness that is not man. So that we don't get into that cycle of judgment, condemnation, depression, confession. But then it keeps it going on again as we self-condemn. Because we're looking at the wrong thing. If we look at ourselves against the Word, we will fail. 
That's the purpose of the root, the law of God, the word of God, to show us. But then it turns us back to the solution so that we're empowered to fulfill the law. And Paul says we will fulfill the law in the power of the Spirit because we are redeemed. And John would even go on to say, say, we obey his commands and his commands are not burdensome. 1 John 3. Why are they not burdensome? Because it's no longer done for the purpose of trying to gain God's approval. It's because we have God's approval. And that we can carry out his commands joyfully for his honor and for our well-being. So it all comes with Amen. We're so quick to want to put a pound in our own flesh in the equation. We want to contribute something. We want to have a part to play. And God just keeps pointing out and says, Look, if you get some of the glory, then all the glory is not mine. And I don't know if you noticed in the passage that um, Brother Jerry read for us this morning from Isaiah 42. But I am the Lord. Yeah, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. That includes our salvation. Okay? That pretty much says it all. <laughs> now, some of you probably are aware that before Luther understood justification by faith, that he kept kept his confessor busy for hours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's why some think that perhaps actually he was mentally unstable, an obsession. And there, you know, look, we're complex beings, and we can fall into obsessive behavior, which is why we need the, the truth to be continually spoken to us and we need to meditate on the truth so that we get a balance. That's why it's not good for us to be left alone. It's not good for us to isolate ourselves because we don't have those contributors of truth speaking regularly to us. And we'll get in a battle in our own mind and we'll start going to all kinds of dark places and we'll start thinking about all kinds of things and we can spiral ourselves into depression and even self-harm. And, and unfortunately, it happens if we're not grounded in, in the gospel. So, James, I think we'd be challenged by meeting James, but it'd be good for us to meet James. As a man of God who walked with his Lord, who taught the gospel correctly, and as church history tells us, died for his faith as a martyr. That just, I think, shows the truth of the scripture. That you can look at Paul and look at James and, and everything fits together. Yes. So that's the whole the whole word of God does that. So yeah. Like that grand puzzle. All the pieces snap together somehow. We just got to make sure we're snapping them together in the correct way. Um, and <laughs> so we need a community of saints, which involves two thousand years of church history, because we can learn from men and women who have walked before us and things that they've learned and passed on. And it's part of what that tradition is if it is rooted on the teaching of the apostles. I'm not talking about tradition that has gone off with all kinds of circumspection and added all kinds of things. I'm talking about tradition as the scriptures talk about it. The tradition is given to the prophets and the apostles and how we carry on with that. Probably having these verses that seem to be at odds with each other actually once we understand it, proves again the authority of the scripture. Others would say it doesn't, but it probably does it better than if it had all been the same verses everywhere and just obviously man-made 
Now, what, what would be the response if all four of the Gospels said the exact same thing? It wouldn't be as rich for one they're understanding of Jesus, but it would be, oh, somebody had a proverbial mimeograph machine back in the day and it just produced different copies and passed them out. I'm so glad the Lord didn't do it that way. Because we have a fuller picture of who Jesus is and what he has done by having these different writers where seemingly John and Peter and James and, and Paul, so, you know, sometimes we have to struggle with what they're saying. Add Jude to the mix, add the writer of Hebrews to the mix. But the important thing is being good investigators is what is the question that's being addressed as we go to a passage? What is its main intention? What does it want to teach? And be careful about bringing an answer that was given for one question over into another context addressing another question unless you have valid justification through the context of each to do so. Um, because God does not speak with a forked tongue. He speaks, in that sense, he's the simplest of beings because it's always consistent. Um, obviously, I'm not saying it's simple, but it, it, simple in this sense means it's not complicated. It is just consistent all the way through. Okay, it's not divided up into different uh, um, sections. That's a philosophical term. That was a simple being, not a uh, theological one. Okay? We're ready to move on? Or do we want to debate some things in, in James? <laughs> Keep it moving? All right. I think I hear you volunteering to pass out the nuts. Is that what you're doing? Open mouth and search like Yeah, he 
He really did. He really face planted several times. And I can relate to that because I do that when I walk through the as well. But the one thing he kept doing was he got up and go back and kept going back to Jesus. He would stay on the ground and grow He would try to justify. He just kept running back to the Lord. And I can relate to that because I stumble and fall and I make mistakes. <laughs> I also know the Lord. He just keeps calling me back. So let's, let's repent. Let's, let's keep going. Remember, it's all about me. Um, do I have to change? Is that the end of it? Okay. Theologically, but really, the true church is divided into the church at rest, which would be what? The church that has only gone before, that is in the presence of the Lord. Okay? That we will all be members of one day. But they are part, they are the church. They believe in the communion of saints that uh, when people go on, it's not as if somehow there's never any. Consideration of who they are and where they are. The writer of Hebrews says that when we gather as worship, in worship, Hebrews 12, it's almost as if we're, a, we're, we're practicing and rehearsing for what is going on in heaven, where the saints are gathered, where the, 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 the beings in heaven are gathered, where the praises are rising, where songs are being sung. Okay? And then we have the church. No. Not militaristic. <laughs> The theologians never said that, but it's the church today that's on earth, that are the pilgrims, the sojourners walking through this world, uh, engaging in spiritual conflict with the forces of darkness that are being used of God to push forward the, the kingdom of God. And it's sung in one of our hymns, The Church is One Foundation, where it talks about these two aspects, the church at rest. Of, um, I think it, it ends with something like, and we, the church victorious, I think it terms, shall be the church at rest. Okay? So maybe maybe victorious, if you want to use that, if you don't like military, militant terms, but we are engaged in, in the conflict of ideas of darkness and light. Well, Peter understands some of this. He's had to live uh, and apply great theology. He has, he has been persecuted for his faith. He has suffered for his faith. He's made mistakes based on his own sin nature and disobedience. But he has stayed faithful to the Lord. And he's starting to write. He also wants to write. And he's responding to the question to believers in the Roman Empire that are suffering. Because there are many of them. How should we endure suffering? And he's had to learn it through personal experience because, remember, he first ran away, right? But he's also the one that got out of the water. He's also the one that made the correct confession of faith. Didn't fully understand what he was confessing. Didn't fully understand what it meant and had to quickly be rebuked. But 
be still an example we could follow. Okay. You know, this is more of an academic exercise that we can pass over with. There are those who try to say, well, Peter wasn't the writer of this book because he was a Galilean fisherman. He didn't have great uh, Greek, and the Greek in First Peter, even in Second Peter, is better. Um, but it sounds like Peter, based on how we see him preach. He's had several sermons in the book of Acts. It sounds like Peter. Here the church said it was Peter. We could just pass over the, the need for him having that discussion. And the fact that the book starts out and says Peter an apostle. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Peter, as, as I'm showing you the notes, was an example of conviction and cowardice. And that's why I say I can relate to Peter. I mean, Paul sometimes, I have to confess, I have a hard time relating to Paul. Just a dynamic go-getting missionary that just suffers and is beaten and is in prison and just keeps on going and just always seems to overcome. Now I feel like sometimes I've got mud in my boots and I'm not walking very quickly and I'm struggling and I make mistakes and I fall. Well, maybe not overtly at times I deny the Lord by my lack of faith and obedience. I can relate to, to, to Peter. But he did have a primary role. He was one of the twelve, and in every instance, he's listed first. So, word order oftentimes does mean something. So it shows that there he was. He was part of the inner three: Peter, James, and John. We see that Jesus often engaging with him, and he did play a role in the early church, undeniably so in the Book of Acts. Okay. Um, I like that he was a man of action, if not always a man of deep affliction. Hey, get out in the water. Hey, Lord, call me. I'll get out in the water. So he gets out in the water. None of the other dudes did. But he at least did. <laughs> Until he stopped focusing on the Lord, right? But we can commend him for trying. And the Lord does rebuke him and say, where's your faith? Let your faith be consistent. Okay. But he's a leader in the early church. He's a leader in the book of Acts. In fact, he's the primary character in the book of Acts, really up to about chapter 10 or 11, and then Paul takes over as the main character for the rest of the book. And he did have some type of special leadership role in the early church. Now, I don't take the position of the Roman Catholic Church that he was the first pope. I think that's ridiculous. I think it's historically inaccurate. <coughs> But he was listed as the first of the twelve. He was restored to leadership by Jesus, who said, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Uh, we see him being used on the day of Pentecost as he stands up and preaches the gospel to Jewish people. The Holy Spirit is poured out. People are converted and joined with the believing body of Christ. He is used of God to preach the gospel to the half-breeds, if you will, the Samaritans. And the Holy Spirit is poured out to identify them as being part of the body of Christ. He is used of God to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. In Cornelius, the Holy Spirit is poured out or identified with the body of Christ. So he had a role to play. And we can learn from him, even if he wasn't always a perfect example. Okay? And now we're what, on the top of uh, page uh, 66 in your notes. And he died a martyr's death. And there's some, 
there's some question about exactly how it happened. I can tell you what one, one tradition says. One tradition says that Peter, knew, knowing that he was going to be persecuted, fled Rome. And as he's fleeing the city of Rome, this is this church tradition, okay, he encounters the risen Christ. Because if Peter, where are you going? He said, I'm fleeing. Where are you going, Lord? I'm going back into Rome to be crucified again in your place. Peter, under conviction, goes back into Rome and is crucified upside down because he's not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as Lord. Church tradition. Don't put a lot of stock in it. But it's, a, it's an interesting tale that people tell, perhaps revealing something of his character. What we do know is he died of Martin's death. Around the same time the Apostle Paul did, under, under the persecution in Rome. And I don't see any reason for him to be impugned by how he went about dying. So I don't put a lot of stock in that tradition. But he didn't disappear off the pages of Scripture when the Acts 11 came, but he does kind of go silent. Most of the emphasis is on Paul, how the gospel is spreading through his missionary journeys, and it's a number of years later, towards the end of his life, 1 Peter's written and 2 Peter, and then he dies in Warner's death. Um, but I guess, again, I appreciate Peter. I wish we knew more. We know he was married. We know he was a fisherman. We know that after the resurrection, he went back to fishing. Jesus had to say, well, I, I still have different type of fishing for you to do. Jesus healed his mother-in-law. So he had, must have had a family. I just wish we knew more about what it looked like to be a, an apostle in that context. Um, but the Lord hasn't seen fit to give us that information. But what we do know is this is a very normal man serving a very great God. And that's where the greatness lies, with being a servant of the living God. So we'll stop there for today. Um, think about some things we can learn from Peter as we move to the book next week. Uh, Lord willing, we'll try to get through both epistles of Peter next week uh, during our time. And I will uh, try to get us started on time next week. So let me pray that. the examples of these very ordinary men that you use in very extraordinary ways. And how that gives hope to us that you're a great God who takes delight in using very ordinary people. So we're thankful that we are part of that group of very ordinary people that are redeemed in Christ and set apart for your service. And as we learn from the examples of these men and from the teaching of your word, would you find us faithful in the tasks that we have before this week. Would you send us out with your spirit and your power and your peace and would we walk in joyful obedience in your service before others. As James said, showing others what saving faith looks like. Empower us to do that, Father, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm. Thanks, everyone. Mm -hmm.